sweet land of liberty, our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friends. I'm going to entice you with a very interesting title for this segment. We call it Equality or Reality. And you might think if we're going to criticize equality these days, we're really talking about gay rights and that sort of thing, the equality movement. But I'm actually talking about religious liberty and developments in Supreme Court doctrine pertaining to the First Amendment. My guest today is my good friend, recovering criminal defense attorney and professor of philosophy at Seventh-day Adventist Walla Walla University, Timothy Golden. Tim, welcome back to Freedom's Ring. Hi, Alan. Thank you so much for having me back. It's a joy to be with you. So the Supreme Court has been distorting history in exalting a concept of equality as kind of the overarching principle when it comes to interpreting the First Amendment. Why don't you get us started in talking about you know, their recent decision in the Espinoza case and how you see this as a distortion, if not a revolution, in First Amendment law. Well, thanks, Alan. In Espinoza versus Montana, the Supreme Court struck down the application of what is known in religious freedom circles as the state's Blaine Amendment, which is an amendment that about 38 states, I believe, have that prohibits the state provision of aid to religious schools. And in doing so, what the court said is that we have to treat the free exercise of religion neutrally so that if we have the a public benefits program like was available in Espinoza, a school voucher program, then we can't single out religious groups or religious schools as being somehow ineligible. We have to treat everyone the same. And the problem with that is that treating everyone the same is not the same thing as treating everyone fairly. Equality demands sameness, but justice often demands a consideration of difference. So the First Amendment itself singles out religion for special treatment and both protecting it in terms of the free exercise clause, but also protecting it by separating it, you know, and saying government should stay out of the business of religion with the establishment clause. So the, the whole structure of the First Amendment treats religion specially, not equally. That's right. And the reason why we treat religion differently is precisely because the establishment clause of the First Amendment enshrines a value of American democracy that says we don't want to aid religion because in aiding religion, we create conditions under which the state can effectively be sponsoring churches 
And if that's what's happening, then the free exercise of religion is compromised. So a just consideration of Montana's school voucher program under the state's Blaine Amendment, it seems to me, would consider the Establishment Clause as a unique reason to treat religious schools differently because the very text of the First Amendment itself already does that. But that's not quite what we have here. Instead, we have a decision that said that the application of the Blaine Amendment to invalidate the state's voucher program or to disallow the voucher program was itself a violation of free exercise. And it's an interesting thing to see the current court trend in the direction of free exercise and trend away from the explicit constitutional text, which is really the first words of the Bill of Rights, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. And it's the free exercise part that the Roberts Court seems to be far more interested in supporting than the Establishment Clause. Well, you know, thinking back, the first cases involving funding of religious schools go back to the 1940s and 1950s. And for decades and decades, the court would analyze these cases on the basis of the Establishment Clause and, frankly, applying history going back to colonial Virginia and James Madison and Thomas Jefferson and how they eliminated government financing of religious education as a, you know, a religious liberty concern. Right. Mm -hmm. And so here now, the Supreme Court didn't even talk about the Establishment Clause in ruling on a program of government aid to a religious school or religious schools in general. Instead, turning the First Amendment kind of upside down and saying, no, this is a matter of the free exercise clause. This is really quite astonishing, isn't it? It is. It is astonishing, Alan, especially when you consider that the argument in favor of invalidating the program was an Establishment Clause argument. And the court basically said the argument in favor of invalidating the program was that even if the court wanted to rely on the Trinity Lutheran case from last year or two years ago, I think it was, which said that a public benefit to repave a driveway or repave a parking lot, that religious schools couldn't be excluded from that. But the argument in the Espinoza case was, this is a little bit different than that, because here we're talking about tuition dollars that fund the entire sectarian enterprise. People send their children to religious schools because they want them to be indoctrinated with a certain worldview and to have state support be paid directly to that mission is what the serious problem was in Espinoza. But as you pointed out, the court said, no, we're not as concerned about that as we are that everyone be treated the same in the public square. But again, treating everyone the same is not identical to treating everyone fairly. So we have a decision based on equality that seems to me to be terribly unjust. So in our discussing this issue before, we also pointed out how the Supreme Court distorts history 
in pursuing, you know, it's, uh, I was taught as an undergraduate, the concept of law office history, that lawyers and judges will manipulate history to achieve their desired ends. Mm -hmm. And for decades, as we've said, the court would rely on the history of Virginia. Here, they rely on a different kind of history, and they've done the same thing in decimating voting rights as they're doing now in decimating the separation of church and state. And, you know, for those who have listened the you know, the propaganda about how separation of church and state is a bad thing, it protects the independence of the churches. It's all about uh, protecting the churches from government interference. You know, that line about separation being a bad thing is very deceptive. But talk for a minute, Tim, about history and how important history is, especially in getting our understanding of the Constitution right. Well, I think that history holds a sway over all of us. It's a concept that in my academic work I've developed called the jurisdiction of history. The jurisdiction of history or history's authority over us is inescapable. When you go outside in the warm summer sunshine and you see the sun in the sky, you don't see the sun as it is. You see it as it was eight minutes ago because it takes <laughs> light from the sun eight minutes to travel 93 million miles at the breakneck speed of 186,000 miles a second, right? So we are literally surrounded by history. There's a delay on this program. I don't see you and hear you as you are. I see you and hear you as you were maybe a few seconds ago or a nanosecond. And the listeners will hear us in a few weeks when this gets posted. And listeners will hear us in a, exactly. So the pull of history, the weight and the force of history is inescapable. Now, does that mean that we're determined by our past or our history? No, but it does mean that we have to be attentive to it. And one of the things that's interesting to me in the Espinoza case is that Justice Alito, in his concurring opinion, speaks to the troubling history of Blaine Amendments as they relate to anti-Catholic bigotry that took place in the 19th century during the potato famine in certain parts of Europe. I think he mentions Ireland and a few other places. There was an influx of Catholic immigrants and the United States didn't want them. And Blaine was an anti-Catholic congressman and so forth and so on. So he goes deeply into that history but yet, in a case called Ramos versus Louisiana, which was decided the year before, in 2019, Justice Alito said that the consideration of history in Oregon and Louisiana's non-unanimous requirement for jury verdicts, uh, despite its history, he said those non-unanimous verdicts were still constitutional under the Sixth Amendment. So it's interesting that in one case, as it relates to race, Justice Alito doesn't think that the history is irrelevant or thinks that it can be cured by subsequent developments. And when that same argument was made in the Espinosa decision about Montana revising its Blaine Amendment in a sort of non-bigoted, non-anti-Catholic way in the early 1970s, he says that's not enough there. And in his let me make sure I got your point because I think it's an important one. Sure. When it comes to race, Alito and the Supreme Court are saying, well, the history can be cured. 
And so the racism that led to, you know, being able to convict people with less than a unanimous jury or the racism that led to the Voting Rights Act in the 1960s, well, that's no longer relevant to, you know, we don't need the Voting Rights Act and we don't need to strike down this non-unanimous jury verdict because race is not really an issue anymore. But when it comes to anti-Catholic bigotry from the 1880s or 1890s, and yet here's a measure that has survived so long and was ratified with the support of the Catholic Church in the 1970s, but here history matters and they can't overcome the anti-Catholic legacy of it. That's the gist of it. Exactly. According to Justice Alito and his concurring opinion in Espinoza, we can overcome racial bigotry, but we can't overcome anti-Catholic bigotry. Wow. Well, I like to think that we have overcome anti-Catholic bigotry as a society. Certainly the, you know, the politics of today has the evangelical Protestant world and conservative Roman Catholics you know, pretty much arm in arm on so many social and political issues. You know, there is some anti-Catholic bigotry, but, you know, there's anti-Semitism and there's, you know, these kinds of attitudes at the margins on all sides, liberal and conservative, you know, in any society. And that's correct, Alan. And here's my retort to that. We may still have anti-Catholic bigotry, which is on any sort of bigotry is morally contemptible. But here's the rub. The Constitution of the United States did not depend on a political compromise that legislated the subhuman status of Catholics. Ouch. But the Constitution of the United States did depend and continues to depend for its existence upon a compromise that legislated the subhuman status of African-Americans. And we're going to close on that point, Tim. I wish we could keep these conversations going. I really do. Me too. Our guest today, Tim Golden, philosophy professor at Walla Walla University. I'm your host, Alan Reinach. This has been Freedom's Ring. Until next week, keep freedom ringing.